Okay, today we're going to be talking about the mechanics of that amazing grace. We're going to look at a little bit of a theological approach to how someone does go from a lost, wretched person to a child of God and to being completely forgiven of their sin. You're turning your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18, and Dave, you can get all these lights up. I appreciate it. Somebody's here in the middle. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Today, as we continue our study in this chapter, and we've entitled the chapter Friend, Enemy, and Adversary, today we're going to talk about our subject is it's your choice. It's your choice. The Winter Olympics are going on, and I must confess, I'm not a big fan of the Winter Olympics. I'm not a big fan of any of the Olympics. I find most of the sports ridiculous and a little bit silly. And what it usually ends up is our cheaters competing against <coughs> other companies, countries' cheaters, right? People taking drugs, trying to get around it. You go there and you listen to them speak, and everybody has a funny accent. You know? If I want to hear a funny accent, I'll just go to Georgia, but, um, where they also cheat in sports. But anyways, no. <laughs> just kidding. But anyway, the Olympics are going on, and Sandra and I this week, uh, our pond in the back you know, has been frozen, and Nate's been skating. He's been using my old ice skates. So we thought, let's go buy some new skates and uh, get some from him and some from Bell. And so we went to Flint to that play against sport, uh, sports and everything and got some skates there and things. And that's when we got home and Nate informs us, you know, the ice is cracking and starting to melt. And I was like, oh, perfect time to buy skates. It's going to be 61. But uh, we were up there. But anyway, we were there. I took my wife and I took my daughter. We went out to eat. And on the TV screen, they're playing the Olympic Games. And so we started talking about the Olympics and the sports, what part of the Olympics we like. And of course, Sandra being a girl, likes the ice skating and figure skating and all that other stuff. And I told her, I said, you know, I made this realization while watching it. The biggest difference between the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics is that in the Winter Olympics, half the events, you could die doing. <laughs> if you think about that, the most dangerous Olympic, the most dangerous Olympic event in the Summer Olympics is that pole vaulting one, because I guess you couldn't impale yourself if you do it. But you're not gonna die running a marathon. I mean, you might feel like it, but you're not going to die doing most of the Summer Olympics. But half of the Winter Olympics, you could die just doing them. The luge. What a funny word the luge is. But remember when you were a kid and you had those little, like, uh, sleds and stuff? That's all the luge is. They put a grown man on a child's sled, and they whip him down at 100 miles an hour. I don't really know if the person's needed, to be honest with you. I think you could grab somebody walking down, tape them to the sled, and go, boom, you want a gold medal. But... Um, the, the skiing, I mean, I've skied in my life, but these, these cats are going like 100 miles an hour, man. And they're, they're only wearing those helmets, and those helmets are not for protection. That's just, they're oddly shaped. They're just for aerodynamics so that they can go faster. And then the most insane one is the long jump. They go up on these ramps that are hundreds of feet high and go down them and then take off. And they, they fly. Human beings are not meant to fly, but these cats are flying for like 100, 200 feet and everything, and they land. And if you're old enough to remember the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, that guy goes down that slide and he wipes out and everything, he died doing that. They, every time you see that, that, the agony of defeat and everything, you're literally watching a guy die. And the craziest of all winter things, because this is what Sandra and I were watching, this is what kicked in this thought process of mine. The craziest is what they call the biathlon. The biathlon. This is an Olympic sport. You cross-country ski. Okay, that, that makes sense. Skiing, winter. No. You cross-country ski, you get to a place, and you take the gun that you're carrying, take it out, fire a couple rounds, 
put the gun back on, and ski away. What kind of a sport is this? When is this ever necessary in real life unless you're Finland re repelling the Russians in World War I? This is a sport in the Olympics. And I, I told Sandra, I said, she, she asked me, well, how do they pass the guy? Because they were watching, we were watching him do the cross country. And I said, well, that's what the gun is for. <laughs> guy gets in your way, you pull out the gun. I got a gun. Well, yeah, you have the gun, go, go ahead. The only equivalent in the Summer Olympics I thought would be is if you swam a lap in a pool, got out, strangled the guy, and jumped back in and went. That'd be like the only comparison. But Sandra asked me, because we were talking about the high one, and I mentioned that that, that guy died in that agony of defeat and the, the dive and everything, and she said, wouldn't it be horrible? Now, she's a nice person. I don't think I am. She's a nice person. She said, wouldn't it be horrible if somebody got hurt? And I told her, no. And she looked at me in horror and disbelief like some of you are looking at me. And I said, no, it wouldn't be because they chose to do this. Nobody was walking along and they strapped skis to them and pushed them down a 100-foot ramp and they flew off. That would be an amazing – I would watch those Olympics, by the way. Random people competing. People have never skated before and they put them in those tutus and stuff and just slide them out there. Let's see what you can do. Ah, that would be figure skating, all right? Uh, but I said, nobody – Forced them. Every person competing in these death-defying sports made a choice. I feel sorry for the guy they land on. That's who I feel sorry for. But they made a choice to do this. Now, I said all that, just a vent, but I said all that to come to our actual spiritual point today, and it's this. If you're taking notes, spiritual decisions, you will live with the decisions you make today. You will live with tomorrow the choices you make. You make a choice today to be unfaithful to your wife, tomorrow you will live with those choices. You make a choice this week filling out your tax to kind of hedge something and say, well, maybe I did. You will live with those decisions you make. You will live with the decisions physically but spiritually. You're going to live tomorrow with the decisions that you make today. You see, it's that way with salvation. Today is the day to accept Jesus. But yet some people make the choice and they say, well, you know, Jesus is just too great for me. You know, who really needs all that love? Who needs all that forgiveness and grace? I don't really need that much love. And they walk out and they make a decision. Every person in this room today is going to make a decision. You might make a decision just to say no to Jesus. You might make a decision as a believer in Jesus Christ to stay in your sin and stay rebellious towards him and refuse to repent. But every person in this room today, including the preacher, is going to make a decision. So my question for you is, can you live with the decision tomorrow that you're making today? We're going to jump in sort of a seminary-type mentality. We're going to uh, look at some theological terms here for a second as we sort of dissect the mechanics of salvation. And if you're taking notes... I want to talk for a second about decision theology. Decision theology. Decision theology is this, that a person must make a decision for Christ. Uh, sometimes it is called decision regeneration. But it means that a person must make a decision for Christ. I believe that. I, I think that's completely right and accurate. That's the side I'm on. But in the mechanics of Christianity, there's always these two polar sides that the two choices that you're given. And you've got to pick one, and you're not allowed not to pick one of them. And one of them is what we call monergism, monergism. And what that means is that God working alone, 
That is often classified as Calvinism or Calvinist. If you've ever gone to a church that has the word reformed in it, that's what they are. They are Calvinist monetarism, that God is working alone in your salvation, that God does everything in your salvation. All right, I kind of like a little bit of that, but I don't accept all of that. The second theological term, the second polar opposite side, is synergism. Synergism. And that is God working with us. And I put in parentheses, that's Arminianism. Arminianism is a belief that you can lose your salvation. Many of our Assembly of God brothers in Christ, they are Arminian. Uh, I was raised in, at the first five years of my life, and this is the reason why we left this church. I was raised Free Will Baptist the first five years, and Free Will Baptists are Arminian, meaning they believe that you can lose your salvation. And see, their concept of salvation is this. I make a choice, I make a decision, and then I turn to God. And because salvation is me turning to God and me being involved in this process, well, what happens if I decide to turn away from God? What happens if I decide to stop following Jesus and stop being a Christian? Then I can lose my salvation. I reject that completely, wholeheartedly, 100%. I'm here today to tell you, once you accept Christ, you're a part of the family of God and you can never lose your salvation. Amen? John chapter 10 says you've been placed in God's hand and Jesus puts you there and he holds on to you. And like a small child trying to fight and get away from a parent, a good parent is stronger than a child and holds on. You may run from Jesus, you may try to uh, uh, deny Jesus, but if you truly accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you are saved today, tomorrow, and for all eternity. Amen? Amen. And somebody might say, well, that, does that mean you can do whatever you want? No. But it's not because you do it because you're afraid of losing your salvation. It's because you don't do things because you don't want to displease your Lord and Savior. And you do do things because you want to make Jesus happy. Amen? Amen. You see, for both of these polar extremes, well, I reject both of them, to be honest with you. I cannot lose my salvation, so I reject the Arminian viewpoint. But I also think that there is a work, there's a place for me in salvation. Now, let me stop for a second. Let me emphasize this. There's no work that I'm talking about, but there is something, a place for me in salvation. You see, Romans 10, 13, and I've often quoted this to the ardent, diehard Calvinist, and it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You understand this? If you're a believer, you're the elect. And some will say, well, only the elect can get saved. And I don't know how God does us. I want you to understand this real quick. There's some things I do not understand. And the problems we get into Christianity theologically is trying to explain God. I believe in the Trinity. But I can't fully explain it. I can give you illustrations like water, solid, liquid, uh, gas. But that's really not what the Trinity is. I can show you me. You see me right now. I am a father. I am a son. I am a brother. I am all those things and the same thing with different relations. That gives you an idea. But I cannot fully explain the Trinity. And you know what? I'm good with that. Because the moment I get a God I can fully explain, I want to get another God because obviously he's as smart as me or I might be a little bit smarter than him. And I need somebody better than me. And with salvation... I don't fully understand how God comes to us and initiates it. I don't understand if I can resist it. I don't understand different things. And to be honest with you, a lot of these people who claim to know it, they don't understand either. But what I do know is this. The Bible says clearly, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Amen. Pastor Gregory, who's my, my mentor and everything. He was very anti-Calvinist, and he would quote this verse and say, you know what? If we get somebody saved who's not part of the elect, God will forgive us. 
we introduce somebody to Jesus and they get saved, God will forgive us. And he always pointed out that people who said that only certain people get, get, get saved, he said, isn't it amazing how it's always their kids that are part of that group? <laughs> you see, but I need to emphasize something to you. I agree with my Calvinist brothers and sisters in Christ that the best I can do, I am a wretched man. I am a sinner separated from God. I am totally depraved. But spiritually speaking, there's nothing I can do to please God. The best I have when I bring it to God spiritually is filthy rags. And some of them would say, that's why salvation has nothing to do with you. In fact, you shouldn't even ask people to accept Christ. I've heard this before. You should never ask a person to accept what Jesus did on the cross and the work that he did. You should never. You should just tell them to repent. And by the way, and, 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 I don't believe this, by the way. I'm just saying this. You should just tell them to repent. In fact, salvation has nothing to do with them. Some people are saved and they don't even know it. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. I know that's not right. They are my brothers in Christ. But the problem with that, the problem with that is they are taking repentance and turning it also into a work. Look, listen to me. If you're here today and I ask you why you're going to heaven and you come back with a verb or something that you have done, you are not going to heaven. Your best is filthy rags. There is nothing that you can do to merit salvation. There is not a thing on this planet. It's not repentance. It's not it. There's nothing you can do. You say, well, Pastor, what has to happen then? Well, you have to be part of the process. And your process is not a work. Your process is a decision. You see, some will say that there's no sinner's prayer. And I've heard many, many people I trust and many people I like, but they will preach against a sinner's prayer. And I always come here to Romans 10.9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, um, when I talk to God with my mouth, what is that? Come on, anyone in, everyone in kindergarten knows this. Praying is what? Talking to God. When I talk to God with my mouth, what am I doing? I'm praying. And thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth, what is that again? That is a prayer, for with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Now, what they're right in, there is no magic formula. When I got saved, I can almost quote you what I said. Jesus, I don't want to go to hell. I know I'm a sinner, because everybody keeps telling me that. I know I'm a sinner, and I don't want to die and go to hell. I don't want to be without my mom and dad, and I don't want to be without you. Would you come into my heart, and would you save me? At that moment, I accepted Christ and what he did on the cross. I was redeemed. I was a child of God. I was justified. I was baptized by the Holy Spirit. All these things took place at that moment. But my words were not special. What does it say? What about heart? May I believe it? I have a pastor friend, and when he was in seminary, like five, six hundred, this preacher came, and he told these five, six hundred preachers and stuff, and said, if you didn't say the word repent when you prayed, you're not saved. you got to say repent. And so about three or four hundred of these five, six hundred preacher kids got saved. And he left there saying, I went to a, a seminary, and five hundred, you know, these kids. Come on, man. It's not about a magic formula. It's about your heart. <laughs> It's about confession. But see, the act of salvation, though, is totally a God thing. Everything about it is God. Do you know that the faith that you have, that you believe, your faith is not good enough. Your faith would never be impossible. God gave you the faith to believe. 
Really? Well, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through what? Faith. Not of yourself. It's talking about faith. It is a gift. What is the gift? Faith. It is a gift of God. You may not have realized it, but when you accepted Jesus, you had nothing to do, but you did play a part. And that part was a decision. And ultimately, in reality, if we break back and look at the mechanics, your decision was to stop fighting God. Stop resisting what God wanted to do. You know what, you know what repentance is? That's what repentance is. Repentance is God is right, I am wrong, and you need to take over God, and you need to do this. And that's what happened at salvation. When you know Christ as your personal Savior, you didn't do a work, you didn't do anything that merited, but you did make a decision. A decision to stop fighting God. And God gave you the ability to repent. And God gave you faith to use because it could never be anything of yours. You are a wretched, depraved person separated from God. You need to see two things as you leave today. You need to see the disgust of your sin just by being born as a sinner separated from God. At the moment of conception, that sin was so disgusting. And you also need to look through the Old Testament, read the Psalms, and see how glorious and magnificent and totally amazing God is. And that amazing God and your disgusting sin could not have coexist together. And that's why God sent Jesus to die on the cross. And he bridged that gap. And that's why grace is amazing. But you did nothing to bridge the gap. You simply made a decision to stop fighting God. And God took over. You will live with the decisions you make today. Are you ready to live for eternity with the decision you've made about Jesus today? Are you ready tomorrow, Christian, to live with the decisions you're making about your marriage, your family, the decisions you're making about Jesus? Or will you, just like salvation, stop fighting God? Let God take over. Let God lead. Let God direct. David is about to realize this. He's going to see the importance of his decisions. And he's going to see how his choices are going to infect him later on. This right here is part of the beginning of David's downfalls we're going to see. You see, last week, though, we saw success. Throw this up here. We said three things. Listen, the enemy is trying to infect your spirit. You are a triune being, a body, soul, and a spirit. The enemy is trying to infect your spirit. And the way you proof your spirit or keep your spirit is by exercising your spiritual gifts. Check out Romans as we went through that last week. Uh, but the enemy is trying to infect you. Young people, some of you weren't here, so let me say this again. You'll sometimes hear a young person say something like this. I'm not religious. I'm just spiritual. Okay, well, I'm not religious either. I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I hate religion. Okay, I'm with you there. But when you say you're just spiritual, you know what you're really saying? What they're really saying is I'm just open to everything spiritually. Really? 99.9% .9 of things spiritually are bad. They're demonic forces, and they are things that will affect you. You would never surf the internet the way you explore spirituality. Meaning just clicking on every offer, clicking on every email from a Nigerian prince, and going, what does this have to happen? Eventually your hard drive would crash and be totally infected. The same spiritually. If you surf spiritually the same way, you're going to be infected by the enemy. And the enemy does three things. He attacks your weakness. What's your weakness? You know it. I don't have to give you a test. You know what your weakness is. We all know what David's weakness was. Everybody knows Goliath and everybody knows Bathsheba. David's weakness was women. Secondly, he's going to play on your pride. Uh, 
Who's your favorite person? Who are you always talking about? Who's the center of your life? You might have a pride problem. And number three, he's gonna always bring back old enemies that you have. You see, David conquered that last week, right? So he's done. He'll never have another spiritual battle in his life. He's free. He passed that exam. Remember in college, right, you take a course that you have no reason to ever need or to know, and you went in there like a cup of tea, right? Your head is just barely, and if anybody added one more knowledge, one more thought, you can't even remember your combination. You can barely remember how to get to the college. But you go in there for the test, and you just literally poured it out, and you're done, and you're like, I'll never have to know German again. Ich bin goodbye. And you leave, right? Because that's not part of your degree. That is not how the spiritual tests go. Where you pass the test one day and you're never going to have to take it again. It is an ongoing, never-ending battle that you will always have. Somebody say to them. So, verse 20. David's going to be attacked by these same three. So leave this up here, Tammy, as I go through this. He's going to be attacked by these same three enemies all again. And David has a decision to make. Watch Saul. He's going to try to snare David with his daughter. First he tried Merib, but that didn't work. But Satan knows David's weakness, and here he comes with another woman. Verse 20. And Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. I'm not big about marrying a chick with a dude's name. but And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, and why? Because Saul saw it as an opportunity to get him. Look at this verse Every man in this building, look at this next part. He is describing Michael, his own daughter. Saul's a tall, good-looking guy. Michael's probably a good-looking lady, too. Watch what she says here, what he says about her. I will give him her, and the authorized version that I'm using says, and she shall be a snare to him, a trap. Young men, let me get excited for a moment. Let me jump up and down and get your attention. Listen to me. Just because she's pretty doesn't mean she's good. Just because it looks good for a day doesn't mean it's good. Married man, sir, just because she's pretty and you're in a different town doesn't mean it's good. Everything that is good looking is not always good for you. Sir, young men, boys, she was a snare, a trap laid in wait. Saul knows what he's doing. Verse 21. There, I got excited about that. You walk out of here and not catch that, then that's your own fault. You're the next world. Verse 21. And the hand of the Philistines might be against him. Wherefore, Saul said to David, thou shalt this day be my son-in-law, and in the one, marry the twain. You put near your Bible, 1 Samuel 19.11, because that's when they, they do get married. Watch how Saul or Satan is going to play on David's pride. Verse 22. And Saul commended his servant, saying, Commune with David secretly. And say, behold, listen, he's getting people in there. He's infecting them with people. Behold, the king hath delighted me, and all his servants love thee. Now, therefore, be the king's son-in-law. Notice something, ladies? He never says, marry my daughter, does he? He says, be the king's son-in-law. He's playing on David's pride. He's giving him a title. Verse 23, and Saul's servants spake these words in the ears of David, and David said, Seemeth it to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law? Does he mention her name too? No, he says, son-in-law. You've seen David's pride in mind. This is a title he's thinking of, a position. And he says this, why? Seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. Uh, if you let someone talk long enough, they will tell you who they really are. 
Just listen for how they focus, what they like to talk about. If they always talk about themselves, that's their favorite person. That's the thing they love. But they will always drift in there, and they will reveal themselves. Given enough rope, people always eventually tell you who they are. David is subconsciously right here showing you who he thinks about himself and what's important to him. I am a poor man, money, and a lightly esteemed. I mean, his position. What is he? I mean, just a few weeks ago, he's a... A shepherd boy whose father didn't even think he was worth bringing in to talk to, to Samuel. He's got no money, nothing to his name. Everything his dad is going to have is going to be passed down to his older brothers. By the time it gets down to him, it's going to be nothing. David is thinking money and position. And next, Saul and Satan is going to use David's old enemies, the Philistines. He's trying to kill him with the Philistines. Look at verse 24. And the servants of Saul told him, saying, of this matter spake. And Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, the king delighteth in a dowry money for his daughter's hand, but not a dower, not money, but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged of the king's enemy. That number hundred, mark it down for a second. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And now watch David, he's going to fail all three of these. He's going to fail all three. Verse 26, and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David, well, to what? To marry this girl because he loved her? No. To marry this girl uh, because it was God's will in his life? No. He, he liked it because why? To be the king's son-in-law, his pride. And the days were not expired. Verse 27. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and slew the Philistines. Not a hundred like Saul asked, but what? Two hundred. Here's his old enemy, the Philistines, again. And I'd like to ask a simple question as we read this. Where in the Bible does it say, or any inclination, that God told David to do this? 200 dead men because David failed the test. And David brought their foreskins and gave them to a full tale to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michael, boy's name, Michael, his daughter to wife. And there's his weakness for them. David made a decision. And the enemy? The enemy's got a football. There's a small infestation in David's spirit. This is the seeds of destruction in David's life. They've just been planted. Oh, they don't look big, do they? They don't look monstrous, but they're small and they're subtle, and they begin to get in because that's exactly what the enemy does. He doesn't come and knock on the door and say, hey, I'd like to make your daughter a crack at it. Satan's not stupid. He doesn't come in and say, hey, I'd like to get you and your wife divorced. Hey, I'd like to come in and give you a life-crippling habit that will destroy everybody you love and will ruin everything you have. He doesn't do that. He comes subtly and silently, and he slips in, and he offers something very simple, very elegant, very nice, and you think there can't be anything wrong with that, Pastor, but it's against God's will and the enemy, whether it be your weakness, your pride, or an old enemy, has a foothold. So how will God respond to David? You know your answer to that? Your answer to that will probably come out, how do you respond to people who fail you? People who fall to you. You know how we normally respond? When people let us down? When people don't do everything we should? When people disappoint us? How we normally respond? Vengeance. Strike them down, God. Vengeance. Get them all that they deserve, Lord. I think about this, this old joke, and it's a man, and he's dying on his, on his deathbed. And he's there, and he says to his wife, and he says, sweetheart, uh, I have to confess this to you. For all the years we were married, I cheated on you. I was unfaithful. Every time I said I was out somewhere else, I was actually with another woman. I can't die without you knowing this. I'm so sorry, sweetheart. 
And then she looked at him and calmly patted his hand and said, oh, don't worry. That's why I gave you the poison. <laughs> See, gentlemen, a little side note. If you have a woman who yells, that's good. Women who yell, you want them. It's the quiet ones. <laughs> the quiet ones, they're the ones who, oh, let's take this pillow. Anyway. <laughs> we expect God to deal with people who let us down, right? We would come back in vengeance. So therefore, God must come in vengeance. That is not the way God responds to if you're here and you fail. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you follow and you've made mistakes, I want us to give you three ways, three things of how God responds to us when we fail. Number one, I thought since this word was in the news a lot, I wanted to offer it. God is offering amnesty for your sin. God is offering amnesty for your sin today. Um, my family, my son, my wife, my daughter, are a bunch of heretics who hurt my feelings. <laughs> Last Sunday night, you know, it was snowing and stuff, and we got home. I was showing Nate different videos on my phone and everything. And so my family was there, and I called Sandra again because I was going to show them this really cool video that brought Bell over because this was, like, really important to me. And I showed them the 1984 Detroit Tigers Bless You Boys video. Yeah. Bless you boys, this and I'm just all excited, and I love it. And they're showing the wave, right? And they're showing, like, Larry Herman come sliding in and scoring. They're showing, it's just, there's this really cool video. And I'm going back to 1984, and I'm showing this, and I look up at them, and my son, my heretic son, says, this is stupid. <laughs> and my wife, my wife who I will never forgive, looks at me and says, this is really corny. And I reply to them all by saying, you're all out of the will. <laughs> That's my team. I love the Tigers. That's, I, in 1984, especially, man, I listened or watched every game, and if it wasn't on Channel 4, they used young people. Only about 30 or 40 games a year were on TV. If they weren't, I listened to Ernie Harper. When they were playing Seattle and it's late night, I had my radio and stuff. My mom's like, go to bed. I'm like, sure, but I pulled them out of the bed, and I'm listening to that game. I love the 1984 Tigers. It was amazing. If you love Jesus, say amen. amen. See? It was amazing. And my son said, my wife laughed at it, and I'm kind of getting choked up because it was such a great experience, and I love the Tigers, and I'm still holding a grudge against all of them. They <laughs> need a place to live tonight, so felt pretty comfortable. But anyway, you know, that's not the way God acts, does it? No. I expect vengeance. I hold a grudge. That's not what God does. You know what God does with our sin? You know what God offers when he does? He offers us two things. He offers us grace. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. It's winning a prize and a raffle you never entered. It's being given a raise at work that you did not earn or merit. It's being given a bonus that you did not merit or earn. It's having someone come and plow and shovel your driveway and not charging you for it. You got something, a gift, and that grace, that grace gave me the faith to believe, that grace gave me the repentance, ability to turn from my sin. Grace is amazing because I don't deserve it. But you know what I also got is mercy. Not getting what I do deserve. I deserve the death penalty. I deserve all of this. I deserve my own punishment for my sin. And instead, I got none of it. What God offers you today for your sin, he offers amnesty. He wants to give you grace. And he wants to give you mercy. But you know what? It's your decision. It's your choice. Grace and mercy, though, they're available for you today. 
Number two, how God deals with your failures. After you receive grace and mercy, God expects you to mature. God expects you. He is expecting you to mature. You know what maturity is? My, this is my definition, so I think it's the best. Um, acting the same everywhere. Acting the same everywhere. Maturity means you act the same in these four walls as you do at work. Or let me flip it. You act at work the same way you do in these four walls. It's an amazing thing because when you come into church, when you hang out with me, you become a little bit better Christian, right? You act a little bit differently. Um, a couple months ago for Sandra's uh, birthday, uh, I bought her. We're children of the 80s and 90s, and we love Seinfeld. All right? That was like our favorite show. Feel free to judge me, but you're wrong. Um, and so for her birthday, I got her tickets to go down to the Fox uh, Theater and see Jerry Seinfeld. It was awesome. He is hilarious. Uh, but it was a great experience. But we went to the Late Show. It was like a Saturday night and stuff. That's why I was tired that Sunday. But we went to the Late Show. And the other show was finishing up where he was doing it at the Fox. And so we went to the Hockey Town Cafe. It's right down there. And it was all full. And stuff. She never, so we went up to the top. And the top is not very, it's not very nice and stuff. It's kind of plain and everything. But there was basically nobody in there. So we went up there, both ordered a Coke and everything. We sat down, we're talking because we're on date night and stuff. Well, this, the second, the first show let out and everybody from the Fox Theater just poured into the Hockey Town Cafe. And so that upper area, we still had time, started filling up. And we're sitting at this table that seats like eight. It's just the two of us and nobody wants to sit with us, right? Not because they know us, because they feel uncomfortable sitting with a stranger. So. We're about to leave, and I looked over, and I told Sandra, I said, what if we could ask those ladies? There were three ladies, dressed very nicely, and they were older than both of us and stuff, so we thought they were very nice. I said, they're just standing there. Why don't we ask them to come join us? Okay, so they come and join us and stuff, and they're drinking and stuff like this, and they've been drinking probably more than they should have or shouldn't have at all, but they're drinking. And I'm polite, and they sit down, and then one starts talking, three ladies, right, older than me. She's got a mouth like a sailor. And then the other two aren't far behind her, right? And so we start talking, and I find out there's three stewardesses. They live in Canton, they live in Bavonia, and they fly in airplanes together, and they just had the day off, and they were back home in Michigan, so they decided to go to see Jerry Seinfeld and everything. They're telling me about their job, and I'm asking them, like, oh, security, and you have drunk people. I'm trying to get the hint to them, but people that are early and stuff, and, and they're telling me all this stuff. And then came the question I always get. When I ask you what you do, you're going to eventually turn around and ask me what I do. And I don't know if it was Satan or the Holy Spirit that made me say this, all right? Maybe I was trying to be mean, or maybe it was God leading me. But I, for instead of just going on a pastor, I don't know why, but I was just listening to all this swearing, never flinched. I was just, okay, cussing and all this other stuff. And I just shot back with, well, I'm a Southern Baptist old school preacher. <laughs> I kid you not. The one that was cussing most looked at me, her eyes got big, and she went. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, you don't have to steal. But she was like, oh, no, 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 I can't even do it. There you go. She said that. And then the other one that was one of them that was with the group, and she was the least inebriated in the group, she goes, oh, Father, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, so what I did is I made them pay an indulgence, and that's how, that's how we paid for that night. Um, I said, no, I'm not your father, and stuff like this. So I was like, all right. Um, why do people talk differently around me? Why do we act differently when we come in church? If you won't say it around me, then you shouldn't be saying it. Right? If you won't say it in these hallways, then you shouldn't be saying it in the hallways of work. If you won't act that way here, why are you acting that way as someone else? You know what maturity is in your Christian faith? Is that you act the same everywhere. 
Now again, that's not a commercial for you to act like work here, right? Oh, pastor wants me to swear. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. You've misunderstood it, you know? See, I've had teenagers long enough, you always have to have a lawyer with everything you say and break it down. Maturity is just simply, God, I'm going to behave the same way wherever I am, whether the pastor's with me, because I have fallen, and I have been given grace and mercy, and you have restored me. Believe it? It's time to mature. It's time to go deeper with your faith. It's time to learn. When I mentioned that on our, our, our small groups, and you hear theology and knowledge, that sounds boring. Yes, there are no jokes in it. There will be no fascinating stories. You will not leave going, yes, I love my wife more. That's not going to happen, okay? That's not what it is. But you know what discipleship, you know what knowing more things? It roots you deeper in your ability to know God. At some point, after you've experienced grace and mercy, when are you going to mature? But it's your choice. It's your decision. And number three, lastly, how God deals with our failures God gives us opportunities. God gives us opportunities. It's so amazing. We can see something amazing right in front of us, but yet we focus on something smaller and insignificant. I got this little joke, so stay with me. I, I think it's hilarious. Ladies, you might not. But one night, a wife found her husband standing over the infant's crib. As she watched him looking down at the, their very first child, their first baby, she saw his face with a mixture of emotions overwhelm him. Disbelief, doubt, delight, amazement, enhancement, skepticism. She was just so touched by seeing his emotions for their child coming out of his eyes. As she walked up behind him and slipped her arm around him, and expecting to hear something wonderful, she put her arm around him and simply said, a penny for your thoughts. The young father looking down said, it's amazing. I just can't see how anybody can make a crib like that for only $46. <laughs> Amazing is right in front of you. And sometimes we sometimes we focus on the less important things. Listen, God is giving you an opportunity today. And these opportunities are this. You're taking notes. God has given you an opportunity to be forgiven. Your sins at the cross. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be anything. Today you simply have to stop playing God and let God take over. Let your mouth use the word God gives you. Giving you an opportunity to experience his grace. Serve him. You follow him this week, you follow him in your life. These old school terms of backsliding, out of fellowship, whatever you want to say. There's an issue, there's a habit that's slowly taking away. Nobody knows. God has given you the opportunity to experience grace. And lastly, I say this kindly and I try to encourage you, I try to be polite here, but he's given you the opportunity to grow. When will you finally humble yourself to God's will? And truly become a disciple of Jesus Christ. See? But if you get used to God, if you get used to that amazing grace, you'll focus on things on the outside that don't really matter. But it's your choice. It's your decision. I want to close today with a video. It worked at night, but it's hopefully it'll work today. I'm going to ask the band, before we play it, I'm going to ask the band to just quietly come up as we play this video about I have decided to follow Jesus. mid-19th century India, a man converted to Christianity by Welsh missionaries was confronted by the chief of his village. The chief commanded him to renounce his newfound faith in Christ or face grave consequences. 
In response to the chief's threats, however, the man only replied, Infuriated, the village chief dragged the man's family outside and began to threaten them with bodily harm. The man, unflinching, responded to the leader's ultimatum. Hot with rage and desperate to save face among the people, the village chief slaughtered the man's family in front of him. He turned his eyes to the steadfast convert, demanding that he either deny the works of Jesus or face his own death. In the center of the public square, the man was bound, beaten, thrown to the ground, and slowly crushed to death. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, you're so kind and caring us. The only word 